Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly, and by the way, happy Halloween. And I'm Phil Casper. Today we have an Indiana Environmental Reporter news story about water quality regulations. The other feature is part two of Norm Holy's talk with Dr. Ray Schnapp about the Indiana Forest Alliance Eco Blitz. That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines. An article in Yale Climate Connections summarized the current status of wind energy, advances in technology, improved economics, and broad political support are making wind power a formidable 21st century energy resource. Top-ranking Denmark draws 41% of its electricity from wind. Ireland follows with 28%. The European Union as a whole gets 14% of its power from wind. America's wind farms currently produce nearly 7% of the nation's electricity. The U.S. has scarcely begun to tap its vast wind power potential. On land, U.S. wind resources are capable of yielding about nine times the nation's power needs. Offshore wind, with only one wind farm to date, could meet nearly twice the nation's electricity demand. The state producing the highest percentage of its power from wind is Kansas, with 36%. Indiana ranks 18th with 5% of its power from wind. The state with the highest installed capacity is Texas, with 25,000 megawatts. Indiana has slightly more than 2,000 megawatts of capacity. Looking ahead, the Department of Energy has prepared a scenario for 35% wind reliance by 2050. While that level of wind generation sounds like major progress, it may be substantially less than is needed for renewable energy resources to be the primary drivers of a net-zero carbon U.S. economy. Wind power has served various purposes in America since colonial times, but it first became available as a source of electricity in the early 20th century, when modestly scaled wind chargers supplied power to thousands of American homesteads and farm operations. It wasn't until the mid-1970s that the Arab oil embargo and a growing interest in renewable energy gave rise to a second wave of American wind power. In 1978, the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act paved the way for America's first commercial wind farm developers. A federal investment tax credit gave wind farms an additional push, particularly in California, where a matching state tax credit earned renewable energy investors a 50% combined tax break. These incentives created a superheated climate for eager wind energy 
entrepreneurs. Often relying on minimally tested technology, California's early wind farms experienced a high rate of mechanical and structural failure, supplying ample fodder to politicians who preferred mining domestic coal and drilling for oil and gas. The average wind turbine today is much taller than turbines built in the early 1980s. This greater height allows modern wind farms to tap the stronger, more constant winds that prevail at higher altitudes. Wind turbines built in the 1980s averaged 18 meters high. Today's towers, which generate 20 times the electricity, are 82 meters high. A further boost to output comes from the development and use of much larger rotors, a key to determining the amount of wind that is captured and converted into electricity. Wind turbines in southern Indiana would be practical if they were very tall and used very large rotors. While wind turbines have grown dramatically in size, the cost of building and operating U.S. wind farms has dropped in recent years, making them now cheaper than solar photovoltaics. The current cost of land-based wind power ranges from $29 to $56 per megawatt hour. Photovoltaics cost about $36 to $46 per megawatt hour. Nuclear power is much more expensive at an average of $150 per megawatt hour. Estimates vary, but hundreds of thousands of birds per year are thought to be killed by wind turbines, and those numbers are expected to rise as wind power's use expands. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has an avian radar project that helps wind developers identify and steer clear of major bird migratory corridors when siting new wind farms. At some operating wind farms where raptors and other vulnerable bird species may be present, specialized detection equipment and human monitors can halt turbines as birds approach. While bird fatalities are certainly cause for concern, wind energy proponents argue that they be viewed in perspective. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service estimates that many more birds die each year by crashing into building windows and collisions with cars. Communication towers and electric utility lines also cause millions of bird deaths annually. The most deaths of birds by far are caused by domestic and feral cats. Efforts are also being made to minimize harm to bats living near wind farms. Because bats generally fly in low winds hunting for insects, studies have shown that their mortality rates can be minimized by curtailing wind operations during these times, precisely when there are limited economic gains from keeping turbines running. According to two Carnegie Mellon University economists, their new analysis of EPA data indicates that particulate matter air pollution in the U.S. rose by 5.5% in 2017 and 18 after a 24% fall between 2009 and 16. The peak in air pollution over the last two years might have cost nearly 10,000 Americans their lives. Air pollution is the world's fifth leading cause of death. Its major component is particulate matter, or PM 2.5, which consist of particles smaller than 2.5 millionths of a meter. Though PM 2.5 
fluctuates because of several factors. The negative changes the researchers observed can't be understood in terms of those fluctuations. Study co-author Nicholas Muller commented that the seven-year decrease in PM2.5 was an important trend and that its reversal is all the more significant. Beginning on November 1st, the U.S. Department of the Interior intends to open Utah's National Park's backcountry to all-terrain and off-highway vehicles, or ATVs-OTVs. Although most visitors to Utah's National Parks seek peace and tranquility, they will be forced to deal with off-road vehicles in the park's delicate ecosystems. The department is offering the public no chance to comment on the plan and has done no studies of its possible impacts. Even without ATVs and OTVs, Utah's national parks are in bad shape, subjected to assaults by over 10 million visitors each year. The parks are in dire need of crowd management and infrastructure repairs. The last thing they need is ATV-OTC traffic, which would destroy the park's ecosystems and decrease visitor safety. Utah's public lands already have thousands of miles of off-road vehicle trails. Allowing such vehicles to expand their range would increase crowding, damage habitat, and forced overworked park staff to undertake traffic enforcement besides their regular tasks. The U.S. Forest Service is accepting public comments on the future of Alaska's Tongass National Forest until December 17th. Under the Trump administration, the Forest Service wants to begin logging the Tongass, the nation's largest intact temperate rainforest. The 2001 roadless rule has protected the Tongass from all types of development and construction. President Trump has given the green light to a rollback of environmental protections for the forest, permitting logging to begin. In permitting logging in the Tongass, Trump's directives violate the legal standards for changing environmental policies. Rare wildlife lives in the Tongass, including archipelago wolves, Sitka black-tailed deer, northern goshawks, and grizzly bears. They have no future if logging takes place in the Tongass. The Forest Service is required to consider each public comment impartially. Even if the Forest Service moves ahead with the logging plans, the public comments can be helpful in court in supporting future lawsuits against those plans. And now we will hear a news story on water quality regulations change from the Indiana Environmental News Reporter. The EPA plans to change a rule that limits the amount of lead and copper allowed in our drinking water. That rule has mostly not changed since 1991, and the EPA says it's time to modernize it. Critics have some major concerns about many parts of the rule, but most say one facet of the rule is a step in the right direction and could help make sure the drinking water in thousands of schools is lead-free. Here's IER's Beth Edwards. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler announced the proposal October 10th in Green Bay, Wisconsin. The water sector has known for years that our regulations governing lead and copper in drinking water need to be updated and improved. Yet administration after administration failed to get this done. The Trump administration made a commitment early on that we would get this done. And today we are announcing our proposal for the first major overhaul of the lead and copper rule since 1991. 
Among the many parts of the rule Wheeler hopes to finalize is one that could help kids in thousands of schools across the country make sure they're drinking water that's lead free. Right now, schools and childcare centers in Indiana, like elsewhere, are not required to test their drinking water, but the state does offer free lead testing for public school districts. The Indiana Environmental Reporter found that only 60% of the state's public schools enrolled in the state's testing program in the 2017 through 2018 school year, the last year reported. Nearly 40% of all public schools in the state did not report any kind of lead testing at all. About 62% of schools tested had at least one water fixture with lead levels over 15 parts per billion, the amount that requires immediate action by law, or the installation of other water quality measures. IDEM told the Indiana Environmental Reporter that Indiana schools are ultimately responsible for monitoring their own drinking water for lead. The proposal, in its current version, could change that. If the proposal is implemented, public water systems could be required to test drinking water at 20% of schools and licensed childcare centers in their service area every year. The systems would have to complete the testing of every school and center in their area every five years. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler said the proposal seeks to protect the nation's most vulnerable populations. Since children face the most significant harm from lead exposure, we are proposing that community water systems sample drinking water outlets at each school and each child care facility served by the system. The system would be required to provide the results as well as information on actions the school or child care facility can take to reduce lead in drinking water. We want to make sure that the parents of those children know what the lead content is in the water where they send their children every day. Only schools that use private wells as their sole water source are required to test for drinking water quality. According to the EPA, the nation's 98,000 public schools and 500,000 childcare facilities are not directly regulated by the Safe Water Drinking Act, which regulates the amount of chemicals allowed in public drinking water systems. Under the proposal, a public drinking water system would be required to collect samples from five drinking water outlets at each school and two drinking water outlets at each childcare facility served by that system. The rule also includes other changes to the current lead and copper rule that the EPA says will help identify the parts of the United States most impacted by lead contamination and strengthen drinking water treatment. The water systems will be required to find and fix sources of lead when a sample at a home exceeds 15 parts per billion. The EPA's proposal would require water systems to prepare and update a publicly available inventory of lead service lines and collect tap samples from homes with lead service lines. The water systems would be required to find and fix sources of lead when a sample at a home exceeds 15 parts per billion. One of the main parts of the proposal that has drawn the most ire from critics is the percentage of lead service lines water systems will be required to replace every year. The current rule requires water utilities to remove lead service lines at a rate of 7% per year. The EPA proposal would reduce that rate to 3% per year. Critics like the National Resources Defense Council say that could extend the life of toxic lead service lines by two decades. The NRDC argues that a water utility does not need 33 years to replace its lead service lines and that the EPA has not adapted lessons learned from the disaster in Flint, Michigan. In Flint, more than half the service lines to homes are made of lead. Thousands of people were contaminated with lead and iron when the city changed water sources during a building project. The increased corrosiveness of the water leached lead from the lines and was present in the drinking water. The EPA administrator said the concerns were due to faulty math and a misunderstanding of loopholes present in current rules. 
Some environmental organizations say that this weakens the water drinking standards because you only have to replace 3% of the lead service lines and that over time is a 20 year difference. What's your comment to that? Well, they're not looking at the math correctly. You know, the, the old number, they're looking at 7%, but they were off ramps where if you didn't have to actually replace 7%. So our 3% that is required to be replaced every single year is actually far more aggressive than what the previous regulation had. I think they're just taking a few talking points and making some judgments without having read the proposal yet. But if you look at it, we no longer provide the off-ramps. So if you are in non-compliance, you must replace 3% every single year. In the past, if you're in non-compliance, you're able to change your monitoring or your testing, and after maybe six months, say that you're in compliance and stop the replacement. Once you hit that trigger, you can't stop the replacement. So it is a permanent 3% per year, and it's going to get the lead surface lines replaced at a much faster level. We also created a new trigger level, which is below the 15 micrograms per liter at 10 micrograms per liter. We're also requiring for the first time ever, if a homeowner replaces their lead service lines, then the water supplier must also replace the water supplier own service line. So we're actually anticipating a much higher percentage than 3% will actually be replaced. And then with the additional monitoring that we're requiring and testing, and particularly the testing of schools and local daycare centers, we believe we're on the right path to get lead service lines replaced at a much faster rate than we ever have before. Again, I think some of the environmental groups who just love to attack us for any reason maybe looked at one or two of the facts without reading the actual proposal to see how the program works. We welcome them to take a look at it, read the whole proposal, give us their thoughtful comments after they've read it, but I would ask them to please read it first. The public will have a chance to submit comments on the proposed rule once it's published in the Federal Register. Once that happens, the public will have 60 days to submit their input. We'll post a link to that site on our website, theindianaenvironmentalreporter.org. Part two of the following feature, Norm Holy speaks with Dr. Ray Schnapp about the Indiana Forest Alliance Eco Blitz. I see in your bat study that they captured a couple of northern long-eared bats. Yes. So what is the uh, estimated percentage of long-eared bats that remain in the state? Well, all of our bats are declining and many of them are declining because of the white-nose syndrome, which is a fungus that attacks the bats during hibernation. Sometimes affected bats can survive if they can live through the winter and get back out and feed. Then they can overcome the white-nose syndrome, but many, many bats are dying. Individuals are dying from this white-nose syndrome, and some species are more susceptible than others. It seems like the smaller bats tend to be more susceptible, 
and smaller bat species, that is. And so we were pleasantly surprised to see the northern long ears, and we captured one hoary bat as well. They're, they're larger. So there's a, a lot of good bat habitat in these forests, and we think that's undisturbed forests with lots of old dead trees are providing really good roost trees and maternity roosts for these species, and we were able to um, put a transmitter on a lactating female bat and track her back to her roost tree. We were not able to get an emergence count on that tree, but we know there are breeding populations in this forest, and, and that's really important information to have to know that they're successfully reproducing out here. Are you in need of any volunteers to to help with this with the surveys? Oh yes, we're always looking for volunteers. You don't have to have any special knowledge really, just maybe some familiarity with hiking. And because we have scientists that are leading the effort but they need support kind of support staff, volunteers can come and help carry equipment and also, of course, learn a lot from these experts. And we're going to do fungi, uh, fungal surveys in the fall here. In the next few weeks, we'll be doing that so people can contact me. It's always very weather dependent, so we have to kind of play it by ear as far as when exactly we're going to go, so I, I'm, not, I'm not prepared to announce a date right now, but we have um, a mailing list, and we can kind of keep you posted about that. And if people are interested in certain species, we can connect you with the team leaders for for those particular taxonomic surveys and kind of plug you into if you're interested in birds, for instance, or if you're more interested in insects or snakes or whatever it is, we can connect you with those teams. And there's a lot of other work that is sort of keeping track of what we have spotted and where, looking for an intern to help with mapping. Uh, I think this would be a really great internship for the student, for a student with the right set of skills and interests. And how, how does one volunteer? Do they simply call the office? Yes, sure. And they can call our office at the Indiana Forest Alliance. I'd like to thank you very much for your comments. Uh, I've been speaking with Dr. Ray Schnapp, a biologist for the Indiana Forest Alliance. Thank you very much for your comments. Thank you. I'll be checking in with you periodically over three years. Okay, great. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Phil Casper. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market in Delhi and East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? 
Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming local events. Soup tasting will take place at the Bloomington Farmer's Market on Saturday, November 2nd, beginning at 10.30 a.m. Few things are more comforting than cold hands wrapped around a warm cup of soup. Celebrate the cool weather harvest from field and farm as area chefs showcase their expertise with this comfort food. The first Saturday Invasive Control Workday is scheduled for Saturday, November 2nd from 1 to 4 p.m. at Leonard Springs Park. Get training on the identification and control of purple winter creeper. Wear long pants, long sleeves, and closed-toed shoes. Register with Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3497. Sycamore Land Trust will host a Liking Lichen Hike on Sunday, November 3rd from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Laura Hare Nature Preserve at Downey Hill, a 593-acre forested preserve in Brown County. Discover the wonderful world of lichens and explore what exactly a lichen is and where and how do they grow and how other organisms benefit from lichens. RSVPs are required at sycamorelandtrust.org. The Sassafras Audubon Society is sponsoring a free trip to Muscatatuck National Wildlife Refuge near Seymour on Tuesday, November 5th from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Participants will have the opportunity to see waterfowl, sparrows, raptors, and maybe an otter. Email David Rupp at david at indigobirding.com or call 812-679-8978 to reserve a spot. Meet at the parking lot behind Blooming Foods East in Bloomington to carpool. Take a guided hike to Devil's Backbone in Charlestown State Park on Friday, November 8th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is normally a restricted area, so be sure to sign up to visit this limestone outcropping on this three-mile rugged hike. Register by November 7th on the Indiana DNR website. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812 812- Three three four four zero zero three, and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's local news story was produced by the Indiana Environmental Reporter. 
The feature interviews with Dr. Ray Schnapp was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. David Lyman and Linda Green wrote and edited the script. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.